Hey everyone, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show where we discuss big issues that pop up as we're reading through the scripture. And we also aim to discuss and answer some of your questions as well. Uh, welcome, but you can probably tell we are a little bit under the weather here, aren't we, Matt? Just a little bit. A little just, bit under the weather. Just a little bit, that's right. But we're still here. We're here. We still want to have conversations. We That's still right. want to look through the scriptures. So <laughs> what what was our assigned reading for this So week? today, you yeah. should have, or if you didn't, that's okay, read Daniel 7 to Joel 3. Yeah. And that includes uh, Daniel 7 to 12, and it also Hosea yes. is in there as well. Hosea and Amos. And Amos. Yes. And now we don't have a big question today. Oh, wait. No, Hosea, Joel, Amos. You're right. No, yeah. no, anyway, I switched it. It's okay. See, unless I say it in order, I get I get messed up. But does that happen to you guys when you memorize the books of the Bible? Have you memorized the books of the Bible? Because I often have to say them in, in chunks to remember which order they're in. Even still, after going through the Bible right. so many times, I still have to say them in order. Yeah. Well, yeah. for me, I know it's Habakkuk, Zephaniah, uh, Haggai, Zechariah. But Malachi. that always confuses me because it's H Z H Z, and I, I, always, I always mix them. Anyways, you do, you do you do it by the first letter. Yeah, that's typically. But then you know, yeah. in that case, I was like, my system's broken. When I was it's a kid, I memorized them in chunks. That's why I have to do them in chunks in right. my head. Otherwise, it's very easy to switch for me. Anyway, we digress. Yes. Anyways, so there's no big question. No big. <laughs> no question. big question today. But there are lots of good smaller questions. That's right, and and most of the questions pertain to Daniel, which yes. is a lot of prophecy and it stuff makes like sense. that. Daniel's that's right. wild. That's right. It is wild. It's wild. So <laughs> we're going to get into that. And I'm just going to start off with the first question, Please which has do. nothing to do with prophecy, but it's an intro question that a lot of people have. It has and that to do is, Corey, with Daniel. It has to do with Daniel. Is Daniel a eunuch or was he? Was Daniel. Yes, because yes. he has passed away, yes. obviously. Yes. <laughs> was Daniel a eunuch? Now, a lot of people are probably going, obviously, Daniel was a eunuch, Matlock. Um, but not necessarily so. So the idea that Daniel is a eunuch comes from chapter 1, verse 7, um, because we're told that uh, verse 7 says, And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called uh, Abednego. So we see the chief of the eunuchs, um, renaming Daniel and these three other Jewish nobles that have gone into exile. However, that phrase, chief of the eunuchs, is elsewhere translated in the Bible, just servant of the king. Um, and it's referring to servant of the king of Jerusalem. So did Jerusalem practice male castration as well? Uh, and were they, is that something that they were allowed to do? We know that um, male castration specifically um, um, made people not able, would make those men not able to go into the temple or the temple precinct, uh, which is really a, an interesting thing that has a lot of backdrop. But even extra biblically, so outside of the Bible, there's evidence that uh, the term <coughs> servant to the king, which uh, sometimes means actual eunuch and sometimes means just servant. It, it fell into a colloquial use that may or may not have actually meant that they were castrated. Uh, however, we do know in Babylon, despite that, despite there being some colloquial usage there, eunuchs were definitely still a thing. Uh, and we tend to think of it, I think today, in today's day and age, oh, like the, that those poor men 
so much opportunity was taken away from them in not being able to have a family. But when you actually look at the records of ancient Babylon, it's actually reversed where um, men often chose to become eunuchs because, I, I shouldn't say often, but but some men chose to become eunuchs of the king specifically because that meant that they could receive, a, they could they could achieve higher positions within the government. So uh, the, the concept being they became adopted family members of the king of Babylon himself because he could trust them, hypothetically, to build his name and his kingdom rather than them building their own lineage, right? Because they can't have children. So uh, it gets a little bit complicated, though, because some eunuchs in Babylon specifically were able to adopt children, sons, and daughters to have. So it gets really, really interesting, but we do know that there were eunuchs in Babylon, that these eunuchs could achieve very high status. And specifically, the king made a pledge with them that was a familial pledge. So he uh, promoted them to uh, and appointed them to high um, places of authority within his kingdom so they could become very wealthy and very influential. But also upon their death, he took care of what the family of the eunuch would norm uh, of a man's story would normally do. The king would do that for his eunuch. So he would create monuments for them. He would take care of the burial. He would do um, this ceremony to kind of make the name of the eunuch last and be extended into the future, right? Now, it's really interesting because uh, there are hints of knowledge of this in Isaiah chapter 56, where uh, God actually, through the prophet Isaiah, speaks about eunuchs as well and, and kind of taking away that stigma that was attached to them back in the Levitical law, uh, the Mosaic law of Exodus and Deuteronomy, where it talks about um eunuchs not being able to go into the, the temple precinct. Uh, so in Isaiah chapter 56, verses four and five, it says this, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name Better than sons and daughters, I shall give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the pun there is included, right? It's de it's definitely on purpose there. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So this idea that God is going to take care of the eunuch as some of these pagan kings took care of their eunuchs as well, except obviously this is everlasting and eternal because it's God. So I... Uh, you know, kind of funneling it back down, circling back around to the, the original question, was Daniel <coughs> a eunuch? I mean, possibly. He, he, he may have been. He fits the bill, doesn't he? Uh, he was uh, taken captive into Babylon. He was trained. He was, he reached positions of high authority. We're not told of any family, a marriage, sons or daughters that Daniel had. So it's entirely possible, maybe even likely that Daniel was a eunuch, but there is still enough wiggle room because of the colloquial use of that term. Um, chief of the eunuchs can also just mean chief of servants. There's enough wiggle room in there where we can say, we can't say with 100% certainty that he was, but it's definitely possible.
that he was. But it's interesting how we think of it more of a negative thing, whereas uh, in ancient Babylon, not necessarily so. It had, there were uh, benefits and 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 non-benefits. What's the word I'm thinking of? That's <laughs> the cold. Yeah. It's the cold state. There is advantages and disadvantages. <coughs> yes. Thank you. That's right. Thank you of it. So maybe, possibly, maybe even probably. It's <laughs> mm. a thorough answer. <laughs> okay, it, question. You're probably right. Question for you, Matt. All right, sure. Does Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 lend itself to the post-millennial interpretation. Right. Now, this is post-millennial interpretation of eschatology. Yes. Right. So, the, the, the end things, when Christ returns. Right. And so, just for viewers who don't know, there's there's three views, and there's sub-views, obviously, within each view. But you can say there's pre-millennial, post-millennial, and uh, amillennial. Now, um, in this, Corey and I talked about, you know, pre-millennial... And we've talked about this in the past. Premillennial is the belief that Christ reigns for a literal 1,000 years. That Christ is going to return before the millennium and that yes. he will reign for 1,000 years. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So the millennial is the millennial reign and that is pre. So Christ returns beforehand and he reigns for 1,000 years, right? And then the new heavens and new earth occur. And there's two different views in that. There's historic and there's dispensational premillennialism. And with that, uh, once with... Um, it's a long story short, but with historic premillennialism, you have people who believe that you go through the tribulation, then Christ returns. With dispensational, you believe that Christ returns, uh, raptures before the tribulation, and then Christ returns after the tribulation. Anyways, but with premillennial, um, the difference there, so with a postmillennial and amillennial, they're very similar because they believe that we're in a state of a thousand years. So in other words, Christ is reigning using us, through us, as a... Uh, as his, um, uh, uh, as his kingdom. And so with a, the, the real major difference between amillennial and postmillennial is that with postmillennial is that suffering and the, and the times get, they, don't, they become less and less. So with amillennialism, if, if I understand this correctly, they permit, um, uh, it permits people to go through suffering and there'll be an antichrist and things like that. With postmillennial, uh, from what I understand, doesn't hold strongly to the view that you necessarily have a the antichrist but you have a antichrist that appear and there'll just be less suffering and and christ will return with a, a kingdom a, a world of of christians whereas amillennialism doesn't necessarily have that anyways hope i didn't confuse anyone but there's there's different views and there's different nuances with post and amill they believe that christ is not a literal thousand year reign because the book of you know revelation is symbolic with pre-mill they believe that the 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 reign of Christ is a literal thousand years. And they just place that at different points in time in the future. Now, the reason why this question is worded, does Daniel 2 and 7 lend itself to post-millennial interpretation? It's because of what happens in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, specifically, where everything seems to be getting better um, as opposed to getting worse, okay? So in other words, uh, here we have in Daniel 2, and this is the one with this, the famous statue. So his head is made of gold, his body's made of silver, right? His legs are made, uh, you got bronze, and then his legs are made of um, iron, but his feet are made of iron and clay. And that just represents um, amazing kingdoms, basically getting worse to the point you have iron and clay. Um, they don't mix together. They just don't hold. So what happens is, is that what Daniel says is that everyone's giving into marriage with each other, 
and this is just an unstable world. And everyone believes, you know, that this is the Roman Empire. That didn't, it was, the Roman Empire was the legs of iron, but then its feet have become iron and clay mixed together. So in other words, the Roman Empire didn't really die. It just kind of fizzled, but it didn't really fizzle out completely. So it just kind of mixed in with other things, which is what historically has happened. So with that, I'll just read for you Daniel 2, and I'll start at um, verse, let's see now, 41, and I'll read to 45. Okay. And as you saw, the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they shall mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in those days, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw the stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand and was broken to pieces and broken to pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. So long story short, there's a mountain, a, a rock cut off the mountain by no human hand. It's the statue and scatters across and a kingdom grows that can't be stopped. It's the kingdom of God and it keeps growing and growing and growing. can't be stopped. Um, and then here we see like how it can't be stopped. Well, it moves through this uh, this idea of the image. We have the uh, um, it's working through the the clay and the iron. So you have the the, bra the gold head, which is Babylon, and it kind of keeps going down to the Persian Empire, the Greek, and it kind of keeps going down. And you have the Roman Empire, and it kind of keeps going throughout history to the point where these empires are not going to be as strong because God's kingdom is going to rule. If I understand that correctly. Then we have Daniel 7. Sorry this is taking so long, but it's kind of a big question. Okay, then we have Daniel 7. And here we have um, another thing where it says, basically, the, the, the kingdom shall rule. And let me get this up for you. I'll, read, I'll start off with Daniel 23, okay? Because it's talking about the beasts that come in and start taking things over. And so if we go to Daniel 7, verse 23... Okay, so here's the thing. So does this lend itself to the post-mill interpretation? Thus he said, as the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and it shall devour the, the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of the kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. And he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High God and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times in the law, and it shall be given into his hand, for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion, and the greatness of the kings under the whole heaven, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, and their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions shall serve and obey them. Okay, so here we have the people of the kingdom being handed down um, from God, a kingdom that shall be everlasting. Okay? So, long story short, um, th there is pressure 
And it looks like the people of the saints, it says here, they shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So the saints are under are persecuted for a time, but after that time, the kingdom of God, uh, God hands over the kingdom to people. Okay, so the question really boils down to, does it lend itself to post-millennial interpretation? It depends when these events happen. So long story short, do these events happen in the future, or did they already happen and we're living in that time of this growing kingdom? Um, and now, truth be told, go ahead, do you have anything you want to say? No, I was just kind of, I was waiting for you to finish and then I was going to jump in. You can just jump in now if you want to. Right. I mean, I mean, I'm coming into this question quite cold, but just, just looking at it here. Sorry, I lost my spot because I wasn't expecting you to jump over to me. Right. So I completely lost my spot where I was looking here. Um, but I mean, when you, when you take a look at it, um, if, if we're, if we're, if I'm understanding correctly, we're discussing whether or not we are currently in the time where we have the kingdom given over to us and the kingdom is growing and growing and growing. Well, the answer is yes. Right? Right. Sort of. Right. But because um, when we take a look at, uh, we, know that the, we know that God's kingdom has come. Yes. Right, but the question is, at what phase of the kingdom of God are we in? Well, yes. And we take a look at the persecution of the church, which didn't end in AD seventy. In fact, it kind of began right in AD. It, it began before that, but it just it snowballed quite a bit, and and it's still going on quite a bit today. And even if you look at Daniel uh, seven verse twenty one, it says, "As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until." the Ancient of Days came yes. and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. But that prevailing, you have to ask yourself the question, is this a physical prevailing where the saints are dying or is this a spiritual prevailing, right? So if you, say, both, is this, right. if you say, is this a spiritual prevailing, then you could argue, well, the Ancient of Days coming was Christ's first arrival. But then the question, then the, then the trouble with that happens. Well, then then why are Christians still being persecuted and why are they still facing death today for their love of Christ. Right. Um, so, uh, so then when you go into physical, um, are the saints of God's church being physically prevailed over to this day? I think yes. And, and what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the return of Christ. We're waiting for the return of the ancient of days. Well, sort <laughs> of. And that's what I'm saying, that the, the, the iron mixed with the clay, like things sort of. So you don't we, you don't think that that's happening today? Uh, no, because the there's way more Christians today than there ever has been. Yeah, like for sure. One third of the world is Christian. That never was the case, and that's physically like yeah. bodily Christian. But there's also with the with the growing numbers of Christianity, there's right. growing numbers of persecution. So it's not as if we're outpacing the persecution. I mean, we are in this in 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 the Western world. But we're not everywhere else where the greater numbers of Christians are. Right. Like that's where Christianity is growing in, 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 in places other than the West. And that's where right. persecution okay. is also growing. Okay. So, okay. So that's what I was talking about earlier. All right. Does it lend its, the question is, does it lend itself to the post-mill interpretation? Uh -huh. The difference between post-mill and A-mill mm -hmm. specifically mm -hmm. is that A-mill permits persecution to the very end. Right. Post-mill essentially... If I've understand this correctly, does not. Okay. It gets better and better, so therefore suffering gets less and less. Right. Right. That's what I'm saying. I don't think now, that follows. Okay. So yeah. in this, um, if you have this as the Antichrist, that's what I'm saying. It depends where you, where you place this. If this is the Antichrist, who or or um, you know, nations coming against and persecuting Christians. Right. You see this here. You see that happening to the end, and then 
the Ancient of Days comes, the Most High, and he gives it over to the people of the saints, right? Mm -hmm. So he gives it over to, to the saints of, of God. Um, so the saints inherit the kingdom. So what I'm trying to say is, if you have it, suffering is getting less and less and less, it seems like there's a bottlenecking point where it, suffering increases for a time. In other words, even if it's getting better for a time, this does still seem like it bottlenecks to a point of, of, of intense suffering, aka the Great Tribulation. Sure. Right. In other words, even if the post mill interpretation seems to be true, I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. Or I don't think this suggests it. Um, I think a mill is more appropriate in this case. But it's because even if you still have the the kingdom getting growing, 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 there's still a bottlenecking that happens in terms of persecution and suffering. And that's really what it comes down to. When does the Great Tribulation happen? And is it going to happen, you know, ac across the world and stuff? And it's like if you believe there's a Great Tribulation and the Antichrist, mm -hmm. then you can't really, the post-mill interpretation doesn't really work as well. Mm -hmm. Because A-mill permits that. But post-mill, it's like everything's getting better, then Christ returns, and everything was like, you know, as Christ wants the world to be a, a flourishing kingdom. Again, I don't think uh, Daniel 2 and 7 lend itself to that interpretation. Sure. But I think Amil is possible in this interpretation. Right. And and I mean, there's there's a lot more than Daniel 2 and 7. Of course. That, that plays into this that we'll talk about as we continue. Right. Basically, it's, about, it's this proof text. And it's like, well, there is persecution that happens. Mm -hmm. And so and the question is, is, right? But it is true in this case that... There's a great, when the kingdom is handed over from God to the people of the saints, it grows and is unstoppable. And it's currently like kind of, it's sort of what we're seeing. I hear what you're saying by physical I don't, and spiritual. I don't think but that is what we're seeing because, because, I mean, when you look at verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven yeah. shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Yeah. Do you, like, I don't think we see all nations of the earth politically no. coming to no, God but, and well, serving him no, at but, this point in history. And I don't even really think it's it's going that way. I think you could have made an argument for it with, um, uh, uh, you know, a hundred years ago with America and Canada and even the UK, right? Obviously, because that's where well, uh, been, we came from. Yeah. But, but I don't... Okay, so even in the 300s of Constantine, or Edict of Milan, permitted sure. Christianity to be, right? Yep. To be the, the national, national, international religion of the yep. Roman Empire kind of thing. Um, people adopted an A-mill view yep. because that's the case. So they're like, yep. wow, like the kingdom of God's actually growing. So the, the, the Europe was heavily Christianized. It's like a form of it, but it didn't last, did it? Well, that's it's what, not, I, well, that's what and, I'm saying. And Daniel's talking about it, this is everlasting. This is something that's going to continue. Right. It's not something that is going to be lost. But, but the, again, in two, you have a, a kingdom, a rock that's cut off by no human hand that's yep. growing. In other words, there's progress happening. Mm -hmm. So the question is, do you see progress today? It's like, well, yeah, you, you do see progress today. Sort of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you do, comparatively. Like if you, uh, But you also see a lot of backtracking. You see a lot of backtracking. Yeah, but, okay, so you go up, down, up, down, up, the, down, but the it's still going is, up. The question is, right, but we're, we're, we're on the timeline right now. So we can't, it's, it's very presumptuous to just say, we're just getting better, we're definitely on that track, where we don't know like what, what is going to be the outcome of the politics of the West in the next 20 years. What's it going to look like in 20 years? Because it looks a lot worse than it did 40 years ago. Yeah. 
So uh, like, are which, which trajectory are we on and are we going to fall farther so, well, so, than we progress? Right, okay. These are questions that we don't have the but, answers to but right no, now. Right, but we're not asking for knowledge. Mm-hmm. We're saying, does it lend itself to this view? I, I'm just so, saying, I think it's, right. impo- I don't, I don't think it's possible to say, oh, this definitely looks like it's lending itself to like post mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. I think AML is, is, is possible in this, in this interpretation. But um, anyways, so yeah, I, I think that, I think the attitude, the post attitude is appropriate. But I, I think that in terms of this being proof text for it, I don't think it necessarily is. But then again, I, I need to, I can always study things more thoroughly. <laughs> and I hope we haven't lost people if you are not, you know, really up on your eschatological views. I hope we haven't lost you here in this kind of lengthy divergent conversation of postmillennialism, right. but uh, without bringing in all the other scriptures. But we'll do, we'll do a better job in the future, I think. Well, there's so with, much to talk with, about. That's it. what I mean. Right. As we as we come across more scriptures and as we get into right. these areas of scripture, we'll bring it up more and more to kind of add to the conversation. Right. All right. Yeah. So, Corey, question for you then. Sure. Who is the prince in Daniel 8 and 9? Right. Okay. <laughs> so, I, I, in my mind, just to, before you go on, I think there's four options on the table. You can just scratch yourself and anything you want. Okay. So, the four options on the table available to you. <laughs> okay. okay, I like how you're boxing in my answer yeah. here. You can just, Here's you can what's bust available out. to you. We have not pre-talked about this. No, you're not. So you have Antiochus Epiphanes or Epiphanes. Yeah. You have Michael the Archangel. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Or the Antichrist. You have, those <laughs> okay. are like, the, so those I, are the views that people okay, currently well, take. Well, first I'm going to kind right. of reject that the prince is the same prince in eight and nine. Perfect. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that okay. necessarily follows. Um, okay, so uh, in Daniel eight, we will start in verse nine and we'll read to verse eleven because that's the first mention of a prince. Okay, so out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, uh, which is the promised land. Uh, it grew great even to the host of heaven and some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Now, when you jump over, so again, depending on your eschatological views here, you're going to see this as a human prince, or you're going to see this as um, a divine prince. And I think, I think, personally, Daniel lends itself towards a divine prince because when we get to verse twenty-five, the prince is referred to by a slightly different name. So here it's um, even as great as the prince of the host. So this is the host of heaven. When the Bible says of the host, it means the host of heaven. So the prince of the host of heaven, who is that? Well, when we jump over to 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So again, we have this idea of the prince of princes. So I think this is, is personally, I think this is referencing um, God uh, or Christ. Uh, it's very similar to the commander of the Lord's army that we see in Joshua that receives worship from Joshua. So this is not an angel proper 
uh, it does not seem, uh, but rather the commander of the Lord's army or the prince of the Lord's army, you know, the, the prince of the host, the leader of the host, the Lord of, of the host. Um, so that's what I would say there. I know there are different interpretations, but that's what I think personally right now that the evidence goes for. Okay, so uh, jumping into Daniel 9 then, we have two different princes spoken of in Daniel 9. And I'm going to try to find the verses here. <laughs> I hope you can't hear my stomach growling. <laughs> can you hear it? Yes, it's, I it's can. It's going yeah. for it. We're a disaster today. We've got holes. Our stomachs are growling. It's. I know. It's terrible. <laughs> it's one of those. Okay, so I know. Do you know which verse the the first prince is? Referenced to in Daniel 9, that one? Well, I know in this the second one. Yeah, 25. Is, right. Um I've just got to read it, you guys. You're just you're just gonna have right. to come along with me for a second. <clears throat> so that second prince in 25, I'll do a spoiler alert. It either refers to I think it either I, I think in verse 26. So it's talking about <clears throat> <laughs> My uh, goodness. Yeah. Okay. Let's just read verse, verses I'm 24 to, to 26. The first time the French was mentioned. It's me too. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the, finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out, or maybe this is the first, I think this is the first, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, that is the first reference. Oh, oh I thought you meant earlier. I couldn't. Okay. There shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. Uh, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, that's the second one, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end they'll sh there shall be war. Okay, and, and it goes on. But right. So there's two princes mentioned there. One is an anointed one, a prince, and then um, till the coming of the anointed one, a prince, the, there shall be seven weeks. And then an anointed one shall be cut off, so that prince, that anointed one, is cut off and shall have nothing. And then the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. So that's a different prince. Now, there are a few different ways to interpret this. Some people see its fulfillment in um, Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, so this is in the intertestamental time period. I always butcher the pronunciation of his name, but Antiochus IV Epiphanes, uh, who, who did come against Jerusalem and, and had a lot of success. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so in, in, in that interpretation, he would be the people of the prince who is to come, okay, shall destroy the sanctuary. Uh, the classical understanding of Daniel 9, uh, verse 25, the anointed one, a prince, would 
refer to the Messiah, right? Anointed one literally means Messiah, Jesus Christ. It could also be an earthly king because earthly kings in the line of David were often called God's anointed, right? But this seems to be a special one, which is why Daniel is receiving a prophecy. Yeah, because Cyrus was called anointed one. <clears throat> yep. Right. Yep, because that he was God's chosen king for a task. Right. Right. But Jesus is the ultimate anointed one. That is why he received that's why we call him Jesus Christ, which literally means the anointed one, right. the Messiah. So in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Daniel, in a, a bunch of other prophets, they refer to as this ultimate king, this ultimate Messiah, who is going to come and establish God's kingdom, which of course Christians see. In the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, there are name, namesake, right? So uh, there is a classical Christian understanding of this anointed one, this prince being Jesus Christ. Uh, then there's an interesting thing happen uh, with this, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Why this is interesting is because we do have a destruction of Jerusalem and the temple immediately following Christ's life on earth, don't we? The Roman um, Empire came in under uh, the then um, the then commander of the army, Titus, who would become the, the, the prince, the king of uh, the emperor of Rome. Um, so I think we see an immediate fulfillment potentially as the prince of the people who are to come, the people of the prince who is to come being Titus in AD 70. But I don't think that you can stop there. And this is um, some personal eschatology because we see again um, in Revelation, we see again and in Matthew 24, I think Matthew 24 is mostly about AD 70, but there's there's some stuff where I'm suspicious that it's going to happen again. We have this, this, this thing that happens with Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy where it's the, the prophecy is immediately fulfilled and then it has a future fulfillment as well. And that's a pattern that has happened. I mean, all you have to do is read the Gospel of Matthew and you see the, the author of Matthew going, here's this Old Testament prophecy that was fulfilled once, but now it's fulfilled fully in Jesus Christ. So we see this pattern over and over. So it would not surprise me at all if it has a partial fulfillment in AD 70 with Titus and then a fuller fulfillment in a future antichrist scenario. So uh, that's kind of how yeah. I would parse that out. I know there are different options. There are diehard, no, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. Uh, there are diehards, no, this is Titus. Uh, but I think when, when um, I mean, we'll talk about it more when we get to Matthew 24 and we get to Revelation. I can kind of go through some of those views. But for now, I, I think um, my personal view right now is that it's yes and. Not yes and it's done, but yes and there's more. Well, I think looking at, at prophecies like a double entendre, like it's a double layered, mm -hmm. I think it's just so important. Mm -hmm. um, because and, I Yeah, and not becoming so set in our ways that, um, because here's the thing, we don't know. Well, yeah. No, yeah, we don't know for sure, but e well, okay, put it this way, even, uh, this actually lends it to, I was reading the next question, lend, this lends itself to the next question as well. But um, even at the time, at not even, but at the time of the uh, of Jesus Christ, okay, yep. even the Talmud says this, the Jews believed the Messiah was coming. Yeah, Based absolutely. on Daniel's, what you just read, right? Yes. Daniel uh, 9, 24, 27. So... Because they, they believe that. They, they, based on what Daniel has said and how many, you know, how long it's going to take, the Messiah is due to come. And there's even, you read the Talmud, there's reports around the time of, of uh, around the time just before Christ 
I think just after or even just while Christ is being born, basically, they're like, woe to us, the Messiah has not been born. Mm -hmm. But they just don't know. But they're like Mm -hmm. writing these things down. Mm -hmm. So it's like they knew that the Messiah was coming Mm -hmm. and based on Daniel's. So regardless of how we can crack this open and figure it out, they, you know, Jesus says, you can predict the weather. You can you get the signs of times, but you don't see what's here in front of you, basically. Um, he's the Messiah, and you guys are all rejecting him. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of like the thing. So it's like, so even that, we might not have a down pat, but... We need to have, what, what I was trying to say is we need to have a certain level of humility when it comes to our beliefs on what is going to happen in the future. We know for sure Christ is returning. Yes. We know for sure he is going to bring judgment um, and salvation. Well, I, I think what helps with your, what you're saying with the double entendre view is like, oh, because with the Antiochus Epiphanes or Epiphanes, however you want to pronounce it, with him, that's everything's concrete and it's done, right? Yep. It's, it, you don't yep. have to worry about it. It's, oh, there's nothing in the future. It's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's some sort of, uh, I guess you could say comfort in that. There's nothing to worry about, I guess. Uh, the other thing is a lot of people believe that these, that these are futurists, mm-hmm. right? Some people believe it's solely futurist. What I like with the double entendre, it's like, well, it's actually both. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually like... Yeah, because how can you not see when you look into the history of Antiochus, yes, but also Titus in AD 70, there are like striking similarities in areas where I don't think in every area, but I think in in a lot of areas that that these prophecies are fulfilled Mm -hmm. by that. So... Right. And to ignore that is to our detriment. Like, why would you ignore it if it fits? You can't. Well, yeah. even even so much, I know, just talking about ignoring, a lot of people put um, in Matthew 24, when mm-hmm. Christ is talking about the, the, the temple is going to be overthrown and not one brick we left on another yeah. kind of thing, right? Um, one stone. A lot of people are like, oh, okay, well, he's talking about the future. And they take that to be immediately now. Like, oh, this is going to happen. Like, temple has to be rebuilt. And I, I think that's because we haven't taught our history. Right. But when you realize that when he's talking, he's like, in this generation, that means within 40 years. And he's, well, typically, it's arguable, you could argue, oh, generations. But a lot of people argue that generations within 40 years. Either way, when people were coming in, uh, the Christians knew to flee Jerusalem at the time because of Christ's prophecy. Well, and, and prophecy, and according, and to, according to Christian tradition, prophecy of prophets as well. Christian prophets were like, you got to get out now. That's right. So they were saying mm-hmm. Jesus Christ prophesied because, this. Because Christ passed away long before. Well, that's the, right. What, what and I'm ascent, saying is. And resurrected and ascended to heaven long before that. Long enough right. before the temple scholars, was destroyed in 80s. Scholars have assessed that they believe that the Jews believe that 40 years was a generation. Sure. And yep. so when Jesus says before he dies, this generation shall not pass before yep. basically all these things happen. Um you have the destruction of the temple. Yep. That's within 40 years because yep. he's preaching in 80, 30. Yep. That's what I'm trying to say is that they believed based on Jesus' prophecy and, and prophets at the time yep. that they were to escape Jerusalem. So we can't undermine that. That's what I'm trying to say. Of Just course, going back to your point, yeah. you can't be like, oh, they didn't look at it right. It's like, no, well, he's actually saying that's true. But hey, guess what? This can also come happen again. Yeah. Right? Anyways. So I, yeah, so I, I don't know based on the question... Going back to the actual question, who is the prince of Daniel 8 and 9? There's a few different ones. There's a, Objectively, right. the, the anointed s- prince is not the same as the people of the prince who is to come. Right. Because you can see why there's some conflation that can happen, even just by reading it. Yep. Um, I'm not going to get into it now, but yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it's, yeah, like I think we've cleared with the double entendre stuff. I think it is a little mix of both, whether it's uh, 
Christ and Antichrist combined. All right. Let's just move on. <laughs> okay. Matlock, can yeah. you explain Daniel 9 verses 24 to 27 as it relates to the timing of Jesus' birth? All right. So this is <laughs> your like... Face, your face, your cold face where you're like, okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> it's like this episode could be more confusing. Like, oh, we're, no. We're, Matlock, we're, we're, we're everywhere now. No, we're just everywhere. I'm just saying. Okay. So as it relates to Jesus' birth... We kind of talked about this. We kind of talked about it. Right. But we're talking about the timing. Sure. Specifically. And... Whether, okay, is it, are we dealing, because here's the thing. So it's asking for how does it relate to Jesus' birth So this is the 70 weeks where Daniel's no, parsing out. Yes, but it's not just related to his birth. Sure. It's related to, some people believe it's related to the destruction of the temple. Right? It's sure. not just 70 yep. weeks, right? Yep. So which is not necessarily his birth. Yep. So it depends how you understand these things. Like I said, thank God the Jews did believe that the Messiah was to come based on Daniel's thing. So regardless of what we think, they already had an established opinion about it. and Okay. Right. So let's talk about this. I was like, are, are you going to explain I gotta get it? I'm going to get to the timing, yes. Gonna... So <laughs> seven years equals one week. Okay, okay sure. And when we read this, all right, so seven years equals one week. And that means uh, 49 years equals seven weeks. That means 62 weeks equals 483 years in, in a long time. So if we read this, I'm just going to read it again just so we can do the timing here. Okay. So 70 weeks are decreed, which is 490 years, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring the everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint the most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So as we talked about, seven weeks is 49 years. Okay, and then it says after that. Um, then for 62 weeks, okay, uh, which is we talked about 62 weeks equals 483 years, mm -hmm. okay, um, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but not in troubled times. So Jerusalem will be built again. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. So here, so we have 7 plus 62 is 69, okay? So 69 is 483 years. So after 483 years, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It shall end, will come with a flood, and to, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant for one week, all right, so for seven years. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So for three and a half years. Times, times, half a time. Okay, there's all these parallels. And on the wing of the abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay. Tons of math there. Okay. And that, yeah, and there's several different ways that people have parsed this out. Yes, as I'm saying, if you start with like 8070 as your beginning point and you go back in time, you're going to get a different number. And if you start at, you see what I'm saying? So there's different, if you start with Jesus Christ. Um, also, um, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, there are different decrees that you can start from. So I have the, f the five yeah. decrees that are listed. Okay, guys, just to bear with me here. Okay, so when was Jerusalem rebuilt is the question. So we have in Nehemiah 2, verses 1 to 8 and, and 17 to 18, we have Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem with the decree of King Artaxerxes. Some people date that to 444 BC. Okay. We also have, as we return to Jerusalem, 
with the decree of Artaxerxes, which is listed in Ezra 7, verses 11 to 26. People point that to be 457 BC. Okay? Hopefully you can spare with me so many numbers today. All right. The decree of King Darius, which is in Ezra 5, uh, verses 6 to 12, is believed to be 512 BC. The word from Yahweh in Haggai, verses uh, 1, verses 115, they believe to be 520 BC. And the Edict of Cyrus the Great, which is in 2 Chronicles 36 and Ezra 1, is 538 BC. Okay. Now, specifically, if I recall correctly, from all, reading all those things, some of them are to rebuild the, the temple, yep. and some of them are to rebuild Jerusalem. Yep. So if you look at Ezra's return to Jerusalem, okay, those ones are in Nehemiah's. Those are about Jerusalem themselves and not the temple, because mm-hmm. even uh, the, the Edict of Cyrus was to rebuild the temple. So if you look at those ones specifically, okay, and you calculate 10, 490 years, which is 10 jubilees, or right, uh, from 457 BC, we end at AD 33. Right. Okay. Which, okay, so... Yes. Are you going to go through all the different ones? Because sometimes sometimes people go to the triumphal entry. Sometimes they go to the baptism of Jesus. Sometimes they go... Yes, there's a whole bunch. And once again, <laughs> we should, okay, no, we should have specified with, no one knows the exact timing for sure because even our current dates aren't the best. Because even... Well, a lot of them are close though. They're close, but even they believe Jesus to be born between 6 and 4 BC. As yeah. opposed to zero, zero BC, right? Whatever yeah, but that's, been, that's, that, that's pretty solid now. Right. But, um, but I, I was just going to say... There are charts that you can find online that part that 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 will sh- like timelines that will show you the different views, and I would encourage you to look it up because when we're just throwing out numbers like this, it can be really hard to no. visualize. But yes. there are some really good charts out there that will show you the different interpretations and where the years start. Right. So if we just bear with me, if we do the Ezra's one, which is yeah. interesting because we're dealing sure. with Jesus' birth, okay? Sure. If we do Ezra's, which is ten jubilees, which if you know what a jubilee is, it's after forty-nine years. It's like the ultimate. Forgiveness. Seven seven. Seven seven. Forgiveness of all things. So that's what that's why you have the the you know four hundred ninety is this ultimate jubilee. Okay, this complete jubilee. So from four fifty seven BC, we end at AD thirty three. In order for Christ to be the anointed one in this interpretation, uh, he would have to be cut off uh, or crucified. Let's say after the sixty nine weeks and in the middle of the seventieth week. So between twenty six and thirty three AD would have to be that final week, which would mean he died in AD 30. That's how some people put that, which means he was born, because he, he was roughly he was 30 when he started his ministry, right? So that means he was born roughly 3-4 BC. That's how it relates to the timing of his birth. That's the question. Can you explain as it relates to the timing of his birth? That's the closest one that we have to that specific interpretation. There's other ones. Yeah. and, and But and, that one seems, the shoe kind of fits there. Yes. Yeah, sure. shoe kind of fits. That's specifically that question. You, we could, <laughs> honestly, all these questions are like, we this is a whole episode. We need to come episode. prepared with charts. Well, this is a whole episode. Like, all these things, these are whole episodes if you want to get into super detail. Great. Each question. All right. Anyways, do <laughs> you have anything you want to say to add to that? No. But what's interesting... <laughs> I don't want to convolute it anymore. Yeah, and it's very convoluted. I know. All right. Hopefully you can... I'm already not great with numbers, which yeah, is interesting. Because I help. love history. So, I like dates. I'm not good with... Right. I'm not great so with So the numbers. one I... Tr- we that I articulated for you related to Jesus' timing is Ezra's return to Jerusalem yeah. for the decree of Artaxerxes, which is Ezra 7, verses 11 to 26. Okay. Okay. So, 
That's that. Let's move away from numbers. Let's Can we get please, out of here. Please, yes. please, please. Yes. Okay, so Let's question for you then. Are you sure? Based on, okay. Yes, please. <laughs> okay. Sure. Right. Based on Hosea. Malak, why did God command Hosea to marry a prostitute? Isn't God violating his own law? Isn't Hosea committing adultery by marrying an adulterer? Right. Okay. All right. So what I, say you? How would you handle that question? <coughs> um, well, first off, I want to say that in Leviticus, it, the priests were called not to marry a prostitute. It was not ordained for all people. But so that if you want to get technical about mm-hmm. him breaking the law, technically, God's not violating or breaking his own law because he said just priests cannot do this or that. And they, that was specified. Now, granted, they were a royal priesthood, right? They were seen as royal Oh, priests. but still, it's, I mean, even like Rahab was technically a prostitute, but she married in and, and she's the great grandmother of David. Right, exactly. Right? So it's like. But she stopped being a prostitute, is the idea. Yes. So I know how this is This is more scandalous. Yes. So it's not, he's not violating any law, right? Because Isaiah's not a priest, right? He's a prophet, not a priest. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and and you could, um, for all intents and purposes, everything that, that we know, even with the Mosaic law, you could choose as the spouse that had been cheated on, you could choose whether or not to apply the Mosaic law. Right. To that, to that. I mean, that's why we see, we see, um, I know people are probably, some people that might be a shocking concept, but when you go back and you look at uh, at some of the Jewish history of that, I mean, they and they definitely didn't do everything right with the Mosaic Law, but it's interesting the application of it, where even Joseph was was trying to help Mary out and not apply the the uh, letter of the Mosaic Law. He was choosing to have mercy, um, and he's not spoken of badly about in the Gospels right. uh, because of that. So it, it it could be a choice, right? The other part of this question is, isn't Hosea committing adultery by marrying an adulterer? Well, she would have to be married to be an adulterer as opposed to a fornicator. And there's no, there's no, it does not necessitate that she was an adulterer at this time. Um, I, I don't, there's no well, indication. I think that's the, She's but, a harlot, but. Uh, I, 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 okay, I would take issue with that only because that's the point of Hosea's, the, the point of God having Hosea marry her is because she's going to be unfaithful like Israel. Right. So, okay, so that's the other part. So some people think that she wasn't at the time Hosea married her, then she became one. But the uh, point was God told him to marry an unfaithful yes. wife. Yes. No, I know. Because she was going to be the symbol of Israel yes. and Judah. And how God is going to restore. Yeah. Right. And of course. Of so course. that was the point of the marriage was that she was going to cheat. I'm not yet. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like going into it. He knew she was going to cheat. Yes, whether she was at the moment of marriage versus whether she was going to become one, he knew either way. Is the point. Yeah. Yes, I get it. No, for sure. Um, but is he committing adultery is the question. Like, well, did he commit, did she commit Well, I mean, adultery? like she is. Right, but yeah. before marriage. How could he, how could God basically be like, hey, how could you, how could God tell someone to marry an adulterer? Mm-hmm. That's basically what the question is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, it, it strikes me, the question strikes me as interesting because it's as if, it's as if there's more to life than our personal comfort or satisfaction or happiness. What? Why would, like this, this question kind of comes from like this place of how could God cause Hosea to be unhappy in his marriage? Right. Well, there was a greater point and a greater purpose to the life of Hosea as a prophet of God than his personal fulfillment, even in marriage. Right. 
And that's a hard pill to swallow, but it seems to be with this. I'm, I'm kind of taking over. I'm sorry, but it's a hard pill to swallow. But it strikes me as interesting that we as Westerners, we come at this question and, and other ones too. Like, like I feel the questions about Esther too in, in a similar way where we are so astounded that God isn't completely as obsessed as we are with our own comfort right. and our own happiness in our current situation. Whereas God was saying, no, like people, my people are dying. So Hosea, I'm going to get you to do something shocking. So since you're taking over, let me keep going. So is it, okay, so, so Hosea is committing adultery by marrying an adulterer. And Jesus talks about this, right? Yeah. If you, right, you marry a divorced woman, you're committing adultery. Sure. Okay. So this is the idea. That's kind of where I'm assuming where this question's coming from. Sure. Okay. So how do you take that then? So is Hosea committing adultery? By marrying an adulterer in this Well, case. she wasn't married. So she she was not committing adultery. That's she what was, I already said. Yeah, she was committing like, right. like uh, sexual sin, sexual yes. perversion. Yes. But she wasn't right. she wasn't an adulteress because yes. she wasn't married. Right. She became an adulteress when she married Hosea and then continued in right. her sexual fornication. Okay. Right? Yeah. No, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah but I think that. it's, it, it, uh, yeah, I still yeah. hold, but I, I think it's really interesting how we look at this as Westerners because we are so self-obsessed with this idea of life is about me being happy. Life is about mm. me being fulfilled. Right. So we see God asking Hosea to do something that is going to affect his feelings of fulfillment and his feelings of, you know, my wife doesn't love me and she's right. cheating us. And that would be really rough. It I would think, be awful. But God had a greater purpose for both Hosea and Gomer in this. I think that's this. part of it. I think this person is, is primarily trying to get you in a gotcha moment where it's like, isn't God violating his own law? Right. In other words... Or not even a gotcha. This more sounds like it's confused. Like right. yeah. God's, yeah. it's more yeah. like a legal. Like how could God do that? Right? This isn't yeah. contradicting yeah. himself. But so, but that's the point. But though. it's not right. But that's the but but one of the points. It, one of the points it is to be shocking. Yes. Like God wants His prophet to have a brutal marriage to illustrate the brutal relationship that exists between God and his people. Right. That should not exist. It should not be. Such a thing should not be done. That's right. Um, so then why did God command, go back to the first question, why did God command Moses to marry a prostitute? You've already said why. But I think this Hosea, comes down to, and to, to get to the heart of it. Oh, sorry. Did you I said, say Amos? You said Moses. I said Moses? Hosea. And in my head I said Amos. See, look at this. We're just, <laughs> I'm too sick. All it's right, so cold. It's the cold. It's talking. the cold. That's right. All right. So, why did God command Hosea to marry a prostitute? You already answered the, from the biblical standpoint why yeah. he's doing this to be shocking, all these things. Yeah. Uh, to, to get people's attention, to, to show also there's mercy, right? He even named his kids mm -hmm. things that you would never name your kids, right? Yep. Terrible things, but to show that they're, they're going to be transformed, they're going to be renewed. Yep. God's going to restore them. That was kind of the point behind this whole thing. Um, but more than that, I think that him getting down to let's say this idea of God violating his own law by doing this. Now, we talked about it's not violating his own law. Right. right? He's already not violating the law. Mm -hmm. But you could be like, well, the heart of the law is not to, not to participate in these kind of things. Mm -hmm. I think this also forgets that forgiveness trumps uh, God's mercy. Uh, what does James say? Mercy triumphs over justice or ju over judgment. Mm -hmm. In other words, when God sees that someone's severely, sincerely sorry, he forgives them. Mm -hmm. So in the same way here, that's what God, that's actually what God's showing through this marriage, that he's going to forgive them, right? And because they're going to be sincerely sorry. Yeah. 
So I think that's what's important there is like we're, despite what the law says, you know, despite what justice says. Yeah, they're mercy deserving of the death penalty. Right. And yet he is going to die for them. Right. So if he you is look, not going to apply that. Exactly. Right. Because you have a person, not a system in control. Imagine it was a system. We were a terrible, terrible yeah, world. Yeah, it'd be bad. That's right. So anyways, I think that's... I think that's good. I think that's pretty good. Surprisingly. I don't know how we did it, Corey. All right. Anyways. So um, I'm going to ask you a question. This is the okay. last question. Has last to do with Joel. question of the day. All right. So Joel. Does, Joel, does the prophecy in Joel 2, which is referenced by Peter in Acts 2, uh, verses 16 to 21, yeah. only apply to the time of the apostles? Which right. say you... What say I? Am I a continuationist or a cessationist? That's essentially what this question is, right? So uh, Peter quotes from Joel 2, um, verse 28 and 29, which says, and it shall come to pass, pass afterward, which cues us that we should go back and read the first part of Joel 2, but that's for you guys to do right now. <laughs> and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So again, yet yeah, Peter uh, quotes that in um, Acts chapter two, um, after Pentecost, uh, does that only apply to the time of the apostles? I do not believe so. I do not believe that you can make a good scriptural case that it only applies uh, to the time of the apostles. If you disagree with me, please pop it down below. I'd love to interact with you on that, but that's currently where I am. I do not think that um, a good spiritual case or or the best spiritual case, can uh, biblical case, I should say, uh, can be made for that. Um, I'll go to First uh, Corinthians thirteen that you know interestingly is often used both ways. But when Paul is talking about the gifts of the Spirit, uh, he's talking about prophecy and all of that. Then he's talking about um, what's better than speaking in tongues, what's better than prophesying, which is, of course, love. You need to have the love of God specifically, not just human love, but the love of God specifically. Uh, verse 8 in 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Uh, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And I know that this is sometimes used, it's often used by cessationists to say, see, that was childish and now we are mature, which I shudder at calling the apostle Paul and all of the other apostles childish. But um, when the perfect comes, the partial shall pass away. What is perfect? Christ, right? Christ, it's, I, I, I don't think you can make an argument that it's the scriptures. What is perfect is the fulfillment of the scriptures, which is Jesus Christ. As then I shall be known fully, even as I have been fully known. I, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I cannot know God fully 
through the scriptures. The scriptures are sufficient. Don't get me wrong. They are sufficient to know God and to bring me into a, a saving relationship with God. But I believe that this is talking about seeing God face to face as we will when Christ returns in the new heavens and the new earth. We will see our God face to face. We won't need prophecy. We won't need tongues. We won't need the scripture because we will have the manifestation of the scripture. We will have God's law written in our lives right before us. Uh, so that I think, I think it still applies. I don't think it was just for the time of the apostles. Right. That's where I'm at. Yeah. Well, I think that makes sense. I agree with you. I don't. I think it still applies. It, 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 even interestingly, you know, in your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Yeah. Um. So I, I think that this is a, a continuation. This. This. This is right. In, because Peter specifically says in Acts, like this is prophecy for now. Yeah. Right. And it doesn't stop. There's no indication that this ends. Right. Anyways, and at the very end it says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's still applicable. Still going. That's still happening. So Thank God. Yes. So I, I'd say that this, this verse is still applicable. It's still happening. No reason for it to stop. No indication that it stopped um, until Christ returns. And we have to that. stop, though. We do. We have to stop this show. Yeah. <laughs> because it's been almost an hour. Uh, and you need to take a break. Yes. You're cold. I do. I would like to. Thank you. <laughs> okay, guys. So what do you think about all these questions? What do you think about Daniel, Hosea, and Joel? Please pop it down in the comment section. And Malik and I are excited to read your comments and go back and forth with you. If you have any questions that you want us to answer or discuss on future shows, please also pop them down below or email us at hello at BibleDiscoveryTV.com. Until next time, happy reading and studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.